Hey guys. Hey everybody. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Chase. And this is Crime with a K. Back again. Back again. <laughs> Barely surviving. Yeah, we had a rough day today. Long day. Long day. Tiring. We're actually recording this on Monday, the 18th. 18th. So we both worked, but also too, the Spotify episode didn't upload today. I know. It's just like everything that could happen just adds a little spice to our chaotic day. It was a spicy Monday. Very spicy. But we're here. We're trying. We're kind of thriving. Mm-hmm. Dying. You're here. <laughs> so coffee of the day. Coffee of the day. We had Starbucks. Yeah. I had a grande. Okay. I get a grande iced macchiato, but I do almond milk. I do one pump of sugar-free vanilla because just so you know if you get starbucks there's four pumps of the syrup in a grande and the sugar vanilla has a lot of sugar so i don't do that i do one pump of sugar-free vanilla and then almond milk and a little caramel drizzle mm, so good i got a strawberry si tea simple easy not simple hard on my sweet. yeah and it's not it's not as unhealthy for you Mm-mm. coffee's so bad for you Throwing shade. It's true. Coffee's awful for you. So, well, there's a lot of things that are bad for you. So I guess uh, pick your poison. It is. It's like pick your vice and mine's coffee. And mine's and beer probably. Well, yeah, because I don't drink and I don't smoke. Yeah. So, yeah. So. We all have our thing. It's fine. Yeah. We're all going to die. We're, yeah. I mean, eventually. <laughs> Slowly. This case and then next week case, next week's case, just so you guys know, we got asked to basically recover all of the episodes that I covered before Chase came onto the show. Yeah, because they need my pizzazz. Yes. Mm-hmm. I knew it. Yep, the pizzazz. Yep, the star. And that was almost two years ago that I started this. That is crazy. So. And look where you've come. I know. We have all of you. Yeah, and me. And you. Yep. 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 Wouldn't be crime with a K without the C. Not with me. <laughs> So today's case is going to be the first case I ever covered on here. Whoop, whoop. Happy anniversary. It's not till March, but it's okay. Oh, whatever. <laughs> We're trying. But it's the case of Brooke Wilberger. All right, Miss Wilberger. Okay. Is that it? Wilberger. Wilberger? Yeah. Oh, okay. And before I jump in, I do want to say, Dior, I'm going to do yours not next week, but the week after. I have yours. I'm writing it. It's just taking a lot longer. So that's why we're doing these, because if not, you guys wouldn't get episodes, and we want you to have episodes, because we're going to be kind of all over the place for Christmas. Yeah. Two, three different states. Three different states. In 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, I guess if you fly, you go over a lot more states. Very analytical tonight. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so Brooke Carol Wilberger was born on February 20th, 1985, and she grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, outside of Eugene, Oregon. She was born to Greg and Cami Wilberger, and she was one of six kids. Lots of kids. Lots of kids. A lot she, of money. She had three sisters and two brothers. I guess back then you could be like raised on a single income, but yeah. whatever. <laughs> now you have one kid, and it takes 14 incomes to raise Yeah, you them. need like $400,000 to mm-hmm. live successfully and easy. Brooke was described as a really good kid. She studied hard in school, and she liked to hang out with her friends and her family. And she was actually a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She did have a boyfriend. His name was Justin. But during this entire time, Justin was serving on a mission for his church down in Venezuela. Oh, so big church guys. Big church guys. Yep. Cool. 
Brooke had just finished up her freshman year of college at Brigham Young University. In, BYU. Go Cougars. In Provo, Utah. Is that their logo? The Mascot? Cougs. Yeah. The Cougs. Cougars. They're good, aren't they, at football? Mm, yeah, they have their good years and they have their bad. They had Zach Wilson. Oh, right. Yeah. I can't really think of him without thinking of the scandal. Oh, with his mom's Something friend? Something with his mom's best friend. Yeah. I don't know if that ever was true or not, but... Oh, oh well, I think he had a girlfriend. Yeah. So maybe that... Okay, that makes it bad. He did have a girlfriend, and okay. they broke up when that rumor came out. Oh, okay, so it's bad. And then she commented that weird thing that was, like, kind of alleging that it was true. Oh. Well, then, yeah, not good. No. No. Also, I do want to correct something that we said in another episode about the Mormon church. So in the case of... What was it? Jan Broberg. Remember I said that B's mom married her dad, her husband's older brother when he died. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what I read was that it's a thing in the Mormon church. It's not a thing in the Mormon church. No. Okay. I thought so. That's <laughs> it's a, not. That's still very weird. No, that's not. And the Mormon church does not agree with that. They don't approve? No, they okay. don't approve. That was like B and his family doing some manipulative stuff. So I wanted to correct that because I didn't want to put any bad blood on the Mormon church. Okay. That was bad B. Yeah, okay. I figured. That's a little weird. Brooke was on summer vacation, and she was working at an apartment complex that her sister, Stephanie, and her brother-in-law um, were managing. On Monday, May 24th, 2004, Brooke woke up, and the morning began just like any other. She went off to work, and she began cleaning the light fixtures just outside in the parking lot of the apartment complex. Around 9 a.m., Brooke's sister, Stephanie, checked in with Brooke and then left to go drive her kids to daycare, but this was only for a little while. However... At 8.30 a.m., only 30 minutes before, Oregon State University student... Go Beavers. <laughs> Chase. That's Chase's fun fact, is he can tell you every... I think I've said this, every college mascot. And he, you cannot tell him a college without him just blurting it out. Yeah. Go, go Beavers. <laughs> okay. Well, Oregon State University student Randy Honrud is walking through the Research Stadium parking lot on her way to class at that university. As she was walking, she began to notice a green minivan driving slowly around the parking lot. The van suddenly came up next to her, and the man driving just, just put the car in park, jumped out, and abruptly started asking her for directions. Randy, yeah, red flag. Yeah, Randy immediately got bad vibes. And this is when the man ran to the van and opened the back door next to her because he pulled right up alongside of her. Mm -hmm. And she sees a ton of blankets and tons of boxes. She then tries to excuse herself, saying that she has to go to class and she's not really sure where the directions are. And as she turns to leave, he grabs her arm. Lovely. She books it. She gets away and she runs off to class. The man immediately jumps back in the car and speeds out of the parking lot. Bold of you to do that in the middle of a college, but... I know. I don't know. Do they have cameras back in 1985? This. Like all over the campus? Because I know not campuses now too have those all those um, like station poles with the blue lights. This wasn't in the 80s though. This was in 1985. Oh, true. This like is 2005, now, 2006. Yeah. yeah. I still don't think they had those blue sensor things though. You, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. We had those. The call buttons. Yeah, the call buttons. The emergency yeah, buttons. Yeah. All over campus. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We even had them. Yep. A short distance away on the same campus. Crystal Thornton is also walking to class, and she is approached by a 1997 green Dodge minivan. The man gets out of the car, and he comes up next to her, and he has an out-of-state map, and he's asking for directions. But as he's doing it, he's touching her arm. Yeah, weird. Weird. Very weird. One of the school athletic directors was driving through the parking lot at the same time and saw this encounter happening, and he also got bad vibes. So he came up, got out of his car, and asked, hey, what's going on? Everybody okay? 
The driver of that minivan immediately got spooked and jumped back into his car and peels out. At 10 a.m., only one block away from the Reeser Stadium, Brooke is working her summer job at the Oat Park Apartments. She had a bucket of water and a mop, and she was wearing white flip-flops with light blue straps, and she was cleaning lights in the back corner of the parking lot when a green Dodge minivan pulls up next to her in a way that blocked anybody else from the apartment complex from seeing her. Mm, Not good. He gets out of the van with a manila envelope in his hand, and he starts asking for directions from Brooke. He then pulls a knife out. Wow, so he escalates. Yeah, really He's 0 for 2. He's pissed. He is pissed. He's raged. He then forces Brooke into the back of the van and drives away, and he drove for five minutes and then pulled over and bound her hands, her feet, and her mouth with duct tape and then drove off towards the woods. A few hours go by, and Brooke's sister Stephanie realizes that she hasn't seen Brooke in a while, so she heads out to look around. And this is when she found the the bucket, the mop, and Brooke's flip-flops on the ground next to the lamppost. But even more strange was one of the flip-flops was broken, with the middle part of the strap being pulled out entirely. Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Stephanie. <laughs> I do that all the time. I constantly words. take two words and just go. Because yep. you're, yeah, you're thinking about the next word. The next word. Stephanie. <laughs> oh my God. I keep saying Over two. Stephanie immediately gets a bad feeling and she goes to tell her husband, Zach. And this is when Zach calls 911. Police immediately send detectives to the scene, and once they saw the bucket and the flip-flops, they opened a missing persons report on Brooke Wilberger. Oh, that's impressive. Normally, they're like... It was quick. 42, like, what, 48 hours? Yeah. They're like, oh, no, she probably just wanted to go on a barefoot run. Yeah, she tripped. She'll be back. When they looked around, they found that Brooke's purse, phone, and wallet all remained at the apartment complex, and it became clear to investigators that Brooke did not leave this apartment complex voluntarily. The first thing that police did was see if Brooke had gone off with her boyfriend, but he was still 4,000 miles away in Venezuela. And this is when police reached out to Brooke's family, one, to let them know, and two, to rule them out as potential suspects. Brooke's family was very well known in the area, and once word got out, within a few hours, there were hundreds of volunteers that showed up to help search for Brooke. A website was quickly established, billboards were put up, and over 4,000 missing persons flyers were handed out. The local church also put together a search, and the area was very woodsy, so it was pretty brutal terrain that these people were searching in. It's Oregon, yeah. I know. Ain't easy. It's dense. And it rains. Yeah. Once thousands of acres were searched throughout Corvallis, at the 11th day mark, the search was called off. Damn, 11 days, though. (sighs) I know. a lot of effort. I know. But the investigation continued on. Police had now understood, okay... We have a suspect who abducted a 19-year-old girl in broad daylight, which was very uncommon and rare, and still is very uncommon and rare, and this girl is nowhere to be found, which means that this person has, one, probably tried to do this before, or two, has done this before and has been successful, so they know what to do. What to do, yeah. So police start going through a pool of different suspects. They went through sex offenders, kidnappers, anybody involved in sex crimes, and they had tens of thousands of these people to go through. Oh, isn't that lovely? I was just thinking, I'm like, wow. Wow, that's so awesome to hear that. It's like tens of thousands. Yeah, cool. Glad there are not that many around us. (laughs) They then had to go out and interview each and every single one of them. Gives myself heart attack, dies. Well, please don't. Oh, I do not have the energy for that tonight. <laughs> Ugh. 
One of the first to be contacted was Lauren Hugo Kruger, who had been convicted in 1985 of attempted rape and had served time for the felony assault and attempted kidnapping of a 23-year-old jogger. He'd also been heavily questioned in multiple stalking events in 2003. However, on the day of Brooks' disappearance, only half a mile away from Brooks' abduction site, Lauren had been spotted on surveillance in a car dealership at the time of the kidnapping. Okay, so they did have cameras. Yeah. Yeah. So he was ruled out as a suspect. I just think in 2005, 2006, like cameras weren't as big as they are today. Well, I'm like, I don't even, I mean, I could be wrong, but like the whole Title IX and... Soon after, 30-year-old Washington State graduate Sun Koo Kim became a person of interest. Kim was currently unemployed, he was in the area, and he was known because he recently had been breaking into the Oregon State University dorms, the laundry rooms, and things like that only a month before. He would break in and he would steal women's underwear. Sounds like an upstanding graduate. Yes. He was like, you know what? I need to go back for Also, more. it's summertime. Yeah. So I'm like, bro. Steal those panties in the winter. Or go work for a, No, go get a job. <laughs> like, you got to pay for school. So, oh, I guess he graduated. Well, that even makes it even worse. Like, you're not even... You're, you're jobless stealing panties. What do you think? People who are employed have a better, like, rapport. I mean, for- they're at least busier. <laughs> You gotta show up. Jesus, like can't no. be stealing panties the in the daytime. The employed aren't stealing as many. It's okay. The unemployed are stealing too many. Well, I'm just saying. I mean, it just protects. I mean, distracts him. Hmm. You know, keeps mm-hmm. him busy. Because at the end of the day, you're tired. You know, maybe it is steal his panties. job. Oh wow, that's even weirder. <laughs> and sells them online. I know that's a thing. That is a thing. Hmm. God, the world is so strange. There's just a lot of fetishes out there. There are. Like there are. When I first met Chase, I knew a girl who made two thousand dollars after of putting her feet in a bowl of beans for one minute. And I asked Chase if he would be okay with me doing that because honestly, like two thousand dollars for one minute with my feet in a can of beans. And no, Chase thanks. said, absolutely not. No, I don't want to ever come into this house and see you stepping in beans. <laughs> we'll make two thousand dollars some other way. I know there's better ways. <laughs> But that's a quick one minute. I don't want... No. Your feet does not need to be on the internet. Smashing <laughs> beans. No. We'll find ways, other ways. There's so many other ways to make money. So many. I mean, I get it. It's quick money. But no, thank you. I don't want that to turn into our household. It's not what I want to do. And why beans? That's so weird. <laughs> that guy has a problem. It was um like Boston baked beans. The Bushes baked beans. That's what it was. So he like he's obsessed and he has a fetish for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, can't knock it till you try Man, it. I know. Oh, imagine if he had a girlfriend and he was like, "Will you do something for me?" He's like, "Hey, baby, can you pick up a can of beans tonight?" Yeah, come home. We're gonna spice it up tonight. <laughs> he's like, "Step in this bowl of beans." <laughs> That's fucking weird. <laughs> I hope one of them's not our listener and he's like all upset now. Imagine. Find a hobby. <laughs> There's so many hobbies out there. Okay. If he is listening, please send us the offer because I would totally put my feet in a, no, in thank a you. bowl of beans no. for you. No, you won't. That would really help us. No, it wouldn't. I would rather just keep our dignity intact than do that. He wouldn't know it's my feet. Yes, he would because he's asking you. Oh, I guess it's nobody else would know it's my feet. Until he sends it all over the world. <laughs> You probably trade bean pick fit like feet picks everywhere. <laughs> it's probably like a big thing on the black market. 
On May 29th, in Tigard, Oregon, which is about 60 miles away from Corvallis, police executed a search warrant on Kim's residence, which is where he was still living with his parents. And panties. Yes. Upon searching his property, police made a horrifying discovery. Well, at least I found them to be horrifying, but maybe people wouldn't. Um, They found a collection of women's underwear, which contained over 3,000 pairs. Used, not used, stained, just all of that. There was a lot happening there. Ugh, God, that just gives me the heebies. It's gross. Where do you keep 3,000 pairs of panties? I have no idea. He also had used tampons, Mm. a collection of pubic hairs, Mm. and a timeline of each item. So who it belonged to, the time he got it, and a description of the person that he stole it all from. I mean, the first one, okay, weird. The last two, though, bro, you like you know you know how down bad you have to be. Like you just scream, I can't get bitches. Like <laughs> you're just screaming, I can't talk to a woman. I have no idea how to physically talk to a woman. Well, I don't. Yeah, because I mean, I don't even think he was trying to talk to him. I think he was just like, hey, can you just give me those tampons? But what do you do with that? Ew. Gross. So he stole all of these items from Oregon State University as well as the Oat Park Apartments. Also, yeah. How do you get his hands on the tampons? Was he just running into the trash cans in the bathroom? That is so weird. Yeah. And no one caught him. No, I know. Three thousand. Wow. Okay. Well, he's weird. So Brooke was last seen at the Oat Park Apartments, and Kim did have all the panties and everything labeled of who and where he got them from and 10 pairs actually belonged to one of the university swimmers who lived at the apartments that brooke went missing at Mm. which this gets worse by the way oh i have no doubt this guy doesn't seem like he's gonna get any better no police then searched kim's computer and they found a huge stash of pornography with more than 40,000 videos of sexual mutilation and murder. Wow. There was also a document that was basically a how-to guide to commit a sex crime. And this is when police believed that Kim was a very viable suspect in the disappearance of Brooke Wilberger. And the media then dubbed him as the panty thief. Why do they give these people names? Doesn't it remind you of the panty raid from Spongebob? Yeah. I'm like, you guys aren't creative. Well, and it's like, why do you have to give him a name? I know. Like, why? Just call him the creep who stole panties. Just don't talk about him. That too. Just like, don't talk about any of it because then more people go do it. Yeah. The tampon thief. Ew. Just thinking of other names for him. The tampon taker. Oh, I like that one. The tampon taker. TMZ, if you use that, you have to pass. I know. What a weirdo. Okay. Keep on going. So Kim did end up passing a polygraph, and he did have a solid alibi. And by October 2004, police have a third suspect. Can we still arrest him? Yeah, I think he got arrested. Okay, please. Tri- I w- I'm hoping they're tri- just tri- like, ah, you're not the guy. Have a good day. Here's your panties. Yeah, here's your panties back. <laughs> have fun. So this third suspect was Aaron James Evans. Evans had been arrested for attacking a female, an Oregon State student, on September 29th, just a few blocks away from where Brooke had vanished. His stepsister had called the media outlet to say, basically, like, hey, my brother did this, and I know that there's another girl who vanished. James, this is on your fam. The media called the police, who added this guy to their list, and the stepsister also told the reporter that she believed that Aaron had kidnapped and murdered Brooke and that she, and that she was the one who knew where the body was. Mm. However, police ruled him out as a suspect as his alibi checked out. And when they went to the place where she said the body was, there was no body. Mm. 
She must have hated him. Yeah. <laughs> she like made some whole thing up. Yeah, just to make sure that... He went to jail. Yeah. The only thing that police had to go off of at this point was the green minivan that had been involved in two other strange interactions that day. Only oh, that's a what block I was going to say. That's, I was literally about to ask that. Like, why don't we start looking for a green minivan? I know. That's what I would go for first. They also were looking for a guy named Brian because there was a phone call that came in from a guy named Brian. Okay. This Brian said that he believed that a green minivan had been driving around the area where Brooke had gone missing. However, they didn't have a full name for this Brian guy and he never called them again and they didn't jot down his phone number so they couldn't get back in contact with him. Solid work. Police then got in contact with Crystal and Randy and the athletic director who approached Crystal and the man. The athletic director told police that it was a 1997 green Dodge minivan with a Minnesota license plate. And they don't really have a lot to go on, but they at least, again, have something else at this point. And on Monday, November 29th, 2004, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at 5.30 p.m., a 22-year-old Russian exchange student who went by the name Natalie left the daycare center at the University of New Mexico where she worked. She made a quick stop at the duck pond, and then she walked down Harvard Drive. As she was walking, someone comes up behind her, grabs her, and holds a knife up against her and pushes her into a car. As he's pushing her into the car, he climbs on top of her and climbs over her to get into the driver's seat and close the door and locks it behind her. He then holds her at knife point and starts driving. He then pulls over, makes her take off all her clothes, and he rapes her on the side of the road. Oh my god. He then started driving again, realized that he needed a quick drug fix, and he pulls out some crack. He lights it, and he's trying to blow it into Natalie's mouth and her nose to get her high. She's refusing, he gets pissed, and he tells her that it's best that she just does what he wants her to do. He then stops at a rundown apartment complex to buy crack. Oh my god. All right. An excursion you never wanted to go on. Oh, and it's like, damn, dude. There's a lot going on for you right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to need you to <laughs> like, take figure, a second. You know, figure it out. The man gets out. He left her in the car and he went inside. Natalie then frees her hand because he had bound her hands. She unlocked the door and wearing no clothes, she runs out. She's trying to desperately wave down any passing cars, but no one's stopping. And then a woman and her daughter see Natalie in the street, mostly naked. The woman pulls over and Natalie jumps into the car, sitting in the passenger seat. And then the man came out of the apartment and gets in his car and quickly drives away. This woman, Natalie, and the daughter quickly call the police and the police come straight to the apartment complex. Natalie told the police that she was attacked by a man who had a crazy look in his eye and was driving a two-door red Honda. So the police go into the apartment complex and they ask around if anyone has seen this crazed man with a red Honda. Oh, yeah. All the crack dealers are going to be like, yeah, (laughs) just saw him. He was buying crack for me. Well, then some woman was like, oh, yeah, I know him. That's Joe. He was just here. And police are like, well, where is Joe? And so she brings him to where Joe is supposed to be. When they get there, they find the little red two-door Honda. No way. Mm -hmm. Good on her. This woman was like, I'm not going down. I know. She's like, don't say anything about the crack. No, it probably went like this. I know where Joe is, but if I tell you, do I have immunity from all yeah, of can my I get out of trouble here? drugs? <laughs> There's no crack being sold here. So the police find the Honda, and as they're inspecting it, a man comes over, and he's like, hi. And they're like, are you Joe? And the man's like, no, I'm Joel. <laughs> and they're like, okay, Joel, well, is this your car? And he's like, yes. 
So they search this man, they find a crack pipe and a knife, and they arrest him for the abduction and assault of Natalie. The police are like, we don't care if you're Joe or Joel. Are you the person that was driving right. this car? Not a really good outlet, like, change of a name. <laughs> no, I'm not Joe, I'm Joel. <laughs> like, really? That was the best you can come up with? Couldn't could have said Steve, anything? <laughs> no, it's being like, I'm not Steve, I'm Steven. Yeah, what? No, that's not me. It's crazy. So this man was named Joel Patrick Courtney, and he was a 38-year-old fisherman, mechanic, and lived with his wife, Rosie, and their three kids. And a crackhead. Don't <laughs> Let's not forget that. <laughs> Rosie had filed a protection order on her husband as he was abusive and a drug addict. Joel was always in and out of trouble, and this dated back to when he was younger. He was one of four, two boys and two girls. He had a loving family and lived a pretty normal life. But at the age of 11, Joel started experimenting with drugs. And at the age of 14, he was molesting his sister and his cousin, who he molested for the next seven years. Yikes. Yeah. At 14? 14. That is kind of nuts at 11. You know how much damage you do to your brain at that age? I know. At 11, you're smoking crack. Oh, my God. I know. Well, maybe not crack, but still drugs of any sort. When I read he was in, and like, I'm, I'm not blaming his household, but it, it does make me wonder what type of household it was truly because 11 years old is really young to get into drugs. I know it happens, but typically those kids don't grow up in the best situations. I don't know, yeah, but yeah, 11 years old you're already starting drugs. Like you're killing your brain. Yeah. You're not your brain's not even fully developed. Oh god, it's almost like you don't have a chance cuz it it is such a young you're still growing. But he managed to have a wife and kid. I know. And a job. Three kids. Yeah, that's wild. Joel also began worshiping Satan at oh, this time. Well, okay. And he began committing sexual acts in the name of Satan and sexual assaults. In 1984, Joel went to a party and left with a girl. He then started touching her. She tells him to stop. So he punches her in the face and touches her in places that he shouldn't have. She then went with it to not get hit again. And then she dropped him off at home. The woman then goes to the authorities and tells them what happened. And Joel was arrested. This is when investigators are like, okay, this guy has sexually assaulted a woman in 1984 and then again in 2004. So that's a really long period to not sexually assault anybody else. That's 20 years. Was there anybody else within that 20-year period? Yeah, 100%. On December 7th, 2004, the investigator working the case in New Mexico realizes that Joel had connections to Oregon in the spring and immediately calls Oregon authorities to see if there had been any rapes, kidnappings, and assaults that would align with Joel's MO of Natalie. Immediately, Brooke Wilberger comes up as basically a yes, we have this case that's unsolved and it is the same MO. Mm, okay. What detectives learn is that Rosie and Joel have a volatile relationship. Rosie tries to leave Joel, he follows her, and then they end up living in Portland, Oregon, living with relatives, at the exact same time that Brooke had disappeared. Three weeks before Brooke had gone missing, Joel had been hired by a company as a mechanic, and he was working in Corvallis. Police also learned that during this time in Oregon, Joel had a green Dodge van with Minnesota license plates on it, and it actually belonged to the company that he was working for. Bingo. This is the exact van that police had been searching for for the past seven months. Police then track down the van from the company. They get it, and they take it in to disassemble it and investigate. The FBI removes the carpet, the seats, everything else with trace evidence, and they send it into the, F the FBI lab in Quantico in Virginia. In February 2005, the FBI travels to Albuquerque, New Mexico with a warrant in hand, and they tell Joel that they need DNA evidence from him. I found this weird, and maybe it's not. I mean, I find it gross, but instead of opting for a swab test 
Joel was like, no, I would like to pluck my own pubic hair and give it to you. That's well, one, weird. That fucking it? hurts. <laughs> I don't know why you just wouldn't want to swab your mouth, but. I think he's just. A, I think he's just not I right think in the he's head. gross. Well, it's just weird. That's yeah. very weird. Why would you want to? And like the police this officer. This is what I mean. Is like I. Carrying around pubes all day long. Never be a cop because I would be like. God, come on, guy. Just, well, I'd just be like, dude, no. I know. Just no. open up. Just, just give open me your, your mouth. Yeah, that like, there be will so... be no plucking happening here. I know. And like, how does that work? Like, because like, I wouldn't trust him to go into the bathroom by himself and do it. So like, you know, they probably sat there and like, well, I don't know that for sure. But like, as an officer, you probably don't trust him going well, into the bathroom. I think you have to watch them. That's what I'm thinking. Just watch the man pick his pew pairs. And then you have to go back and explain that to everyone at your office. <laughs> I can't. So now police have physical samples to compare against the bodily fluids that were found in the vehicle. While these tests are being run, police in Oregon are trying to piece together where Joel was the day on that day and if he was in Corvallis. Coincidentally, Joel had a hearing that same day that Brooke went missing for a DUI that he'd recently gotten. But he made the call to the courthouse from Corvallis saying that he'd be late and then he never showed up. And why is he still driving a work truck with a DUI pending? I don't know. Maybe they won't get a new work truck. <laughs> could be going out of business. They're going to get in trouble. Family members of Joel called police on May 25th, saying that they hadn't seen or heard from him in over 16 hours. And then Joel came barging in, completely disheveled, saying that he'd had to go into the woods, that there was a young girl who's being held captive, and he tried to save her, and his hands are covered in blood, but no one in his family believes him. But they say, you know what? Whatever. We'll just chalk it up to his chronic drug use. We have no idea what the hell happened or why he's covered in blood, but what do we know? Great job, everybody. Solid work. They're just following your motto of mind your business. Oh, it's true. Well, I, I'm still nosy. <laughs> I'm from afar, I would still figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. On May 24th, 2005, exactly one year since Brooks' disappearance, the police department got a call from the FBI lab in Quantico saying that the DNA evidence in the van was a match to Joel Courtney and that there is DNA from Brooke Wilberger in that van as well. Now, at this point, there was absolutely no doubt that Brooke was in that van and that she was put in there by Joel. The DNA is conclusive enough to prove that Brooke was sexually assaulted, so Joel was immediately charged with the rape and murder of Brooke Wilberger. On August 2nd, 2005, Joel was served with an arrest warrant. So now he has to come back and deal with his charges in Oregon from New Mexico. Mm -hmm. However, once he was served with that warrant, he tried to play mentally incompetent but the Albuquerque court system deemed him mentally competent to stand trial. So, nice try. Yeah, nice try, douche. In 2007 in Albuquerque, Joel pled guilty to the kidnapping and sexual assault of the Russian exchange student Natalie. The judge sentenced Joel to 18 years in prison. That's it. That's it. In April of 2008, he was extradited to Oregon to face charges against him for the murder and rape of Brooke Wilberger. In the spring of 2009... 42-year-old Joel Courtney was standing trial against his charges for the rape and murder of Brooke Wilberger. Prosecutors brought in evidence that Joel had been violent against women numerous times over the past two decades. There was one instance where he tried raping his sister, and she smacked him over the head with a clock to get him to stop. I wish she hit him a little bit harder. Yeah, just hard enough, please. Hit him in the temple. Yeah. They also presented a witness who spent time with Joel the night before Brooke's disappearance. This person said that they were drinking and smoking crack all night. So obviously, this means that Joel is under the influence and was in a bad state of mind when he crossed paths with Brooke. 
I just I find it so strange that like that is a thing that happens. People do crack. Well, yeah, and it's like, what did you do last night? Uh, just went over to my buddy's, drank some beer, smoked some crack. What about you? It's the honesty. Yeah, for it's me. like, yeah, we drank and smoked it's some the crack. Shameless, it's like, like, wait, what? You did who? Huh? <laughs> like, I had like six vodka sodas at my mom's wedding, and I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my god, Kelsey, don't. I know. Like, don't talk about that. These people are like, yeah, I smoked yeah. a little. Like, hey, man, what'd you do this weekend? Smoke some crack. What about you? I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> hmm? Huh? <laughs> what? Okay. It's just like we all have our advice. Yeah, we all have our thing, I guess. The family members of Brooke were begging the prosecution to do whatever it took to get Brooke's body, even if that meant striking a deal with the devil, Joel. The prosecution then presents the deal to Joel that says if he pleads guilty and tells them where the body is, where Brooke's body is, then he would receive life in prison without parole. Mind you, they're charging him on the only crime in Oregon that would allow the death penalty. Oh, nice. So Joel rejects the offer. Okay. But he quickly comes back and says, okay, I'll do that. But only if I can be incarcerated in New Mexico near my family instead of in Oregon. However, Governor Richardson of New Mexico is completely against this and is less than thrilled at the offer. But Brooke's family then appeals that and basically begs the governor of New Mexico to change his mind. He changes his mind and accepts to let Joel be transferred to New Mexico. And on September 18th, 2009, Joel accepts and signs the plea deal and draws a map of where Brooke's body's buried in a shallow grave. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that that was the outcome, but... Yeah. I mean, he's already in prison. So, I didn't really matter where he's at, I guess. I but guess, I guess, like, you killed somebody. Why do you deserve to still be with your family? I guess my thing, him. too, is, like, when someone goes on death row, they sit on there for, like, 20 years. So, to me, I'd be like, I just want the body. Like, you're going to sit in a prison regardless. So, like... That's what I'm thinking. Like, I just want to see my kid. Yeah. Or, like, at least have it. Have the body to have yeah. comfort. But it's, like, it, it's a bad taste in your mouth because it's, like, well, you now you get to still see your family. Like, I don't yeah. want you to see your family. Uh, yeah. I want you just to rot in there and see nobody. But... I, I would, mean, like, it's... pay a guard. I'd be like, hey... Oh, Will you'd you pay a guard. You'd, you'd find him. You'd find a guard to pay. Great. And you go to jail. I love know. that. I just can't think about that because I like probably actually would do something crazy like murder somebody back. If somebody murdered anybody in my family, even your family. Yeah, but like, like I get like I get what they did though because it's like 100%. I want the body. I want 100%. the body. I want to be able to bury my person. Like yeah, I want to be want able your... to bury my, my daughter. And that's the only thing that you now have of her is the body. And he's not going to say anything unless... Right. Yeah. Joel then walks law enforcement through the morning that he kidnapped, raped, and then murdered Brooke. He tells the story, which is his side. So again, we only know his side. He says that he abducted her, bound her up, took her to the woods, then went out and bought her some McDonald's for dinner and brought her back a bottle of wine. And then in the morning, he raped her. But Joel says that in the morning he raped her, he was telling the story as if they were making love and having consensual sex. When Brooke fought back, he tried to calm her down, saying that they were having consensual sex. Stop. You're, you're supposed to enjoy this. Like, yeah, like, what? what? He said that she fought so hard and she became upset and she was getting loud. So then Joel got mad that she wasn't enjoying it. So he punched her in the head and then crushed her skull with a nearby piece of wood. Oh, my God. After this confession, police took the map Joel drew and drove about 10 miles outside of Corvallis into an area known as the Coast Range, and they attempted to find Brooke. The police searched the area that he gave them, and they didn't find the body at first. But at 9.40 a.m., police found the shallow grave and the remains of Brooke Wilberger. 
On September 21, 2009, Joel Courtney was formally sentenced to the rape and murder of Brooke Wilberger, and he got life in prison without parole. He served time at a supermax prison, but is now currently incarcerated at the medium security Lee County Correctional Facility in Hobbs, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Well, rotten hell. Yep. What a guy. What a guy. An awful guy. Also, I, I, like, I, want, I, I really want to know about Mr. Panty Snatcher, too. Like, he is, is he just chilling out in the world? Like, I, I know. I didn't find anything else on him. <laughs> like, bro, where do you do it? Like, where are you right now? Yeah. Where is the... Have you gotten help? You need it. Hopefully, he got arrested. And, like, charged as, like, a serial I think creep. so. But, like, what would you, like, I guess you would... Stealing. Breaking and entering. <laughs> Stealing. I, know, I don't know why I'm questioning that. I guess it's, like, but, like, to me, I'm, like, can we give him more? Like, I wish there was a thing that you could charge him of, like, stealing sexual items. Or something. Or just, like, you're a creep. He was also watching, like, um, horror... Uh, what is it? Mm. What is it when you... Snuff porn. What's that? A snuff film is when it's like a film of you killing somebody. Oh, wow. Love while that. you're having sex with okay, them. Okay, cool, 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 cool. All right, well, um, yeah, where are where is he now? So you have a family, kids? <laughs> how's, how's he doing? I'd like to know where you are. So I cannot go there. Yeah, ever. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, okay, well. But anyways. It's sad. Or Like, she's just living her life. And imagine being in Venezuela, like the boyfriend is in Venezuela. I know. And you come home to that. No. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I get when I first posted this case, I got a lot of responses saying that it was from a lot of young girls, and they said, "I remember this case because I remember looking at her and thinking like it could be me, and this person's still out there, and she's so pretty, and she's so cute, and she's just gone, like she's just gone." And it was a huge loss. Her, I know. Glad they found her, and like honestly, like yeah, you. you it's pretty impressive. Well, and the thing is, is he did it to himself, but it is still impressive that they were able to still find him. Yeah, because he has an itch. He's got a scratch. He's going after the other girls. I know, and you go all the way from Oregon to yeah, New Mexico. I know. Well, lovely. Lovely. Just another another one of those. I know. They are so awful. I know. And it's everywhere, every day. It, is, it makes me so sad. That's why I get so scared. What, for me? Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody going to mess with me. They better not, or I'll, I'll fucking kill him. I'll kill him. Oh. I'm gonna come with me. Mm-mm. Okay. okay. Mm. Oh. I'm a five foot three ball of fury. <laughs> yeah, you are. Pow. Yep, I'll do it. What pow? <laughs> Actually, every time I try to run at you to wrestle, I just get <laughs> just thrown down. Yep. All right. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Crime of the K. If you want to send us a case, you can send it to Crime of the K at Gmail. Um, and sorry we haven't been posting on YouTube. It's just a lot to do the video, and it's holiday time, so we're gonna get back. Yeah, into and it no one's slowing down. I know this year has been like so wild. Yeah, like normally, like even like the last week of work before the holidays is like super chill, mm-hmm. relaxing. No, nope, not this year. I got scheduled for a nine a.m. call the day after Christmas. It's crazy. Like I've never seen anything like it this year. It's insane. I yeah, I've had so much work to do. Mm-hmm. It is unbelievable. I'm like, will you go home and spend time with your kids, please? <laughs> and then like mix in like family stuff. It's just been a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. been a lot. But we thank you. And we gotta buy presents. Ugh, buying presents that's stressful okay it's not been holly and jolly (laughs) okay other than that we'll we'll see see you next week. week bye bye